Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Pixels. This is the show where we talk about video games, the industry, the news, the releases, pretty much everything that you need to know about this uh, wonderful hobby of ours. My name is Patrick Beja, and I'm very glad to be welcoming back once again uh, Daniel Ahmad, also known as Zuj, EX, Zuj, Juge, I can, I will never know how to pronounce your uh, nickname. <laughs> welcome to the show, though. Well, that's fine. Uh, yeah, it's great to be back. Great, great to be back on on the podcast again. After how long has it been? It's been a few months, right? Yeah, it's been three three or so, three or four months, something like that. Thanks for um, making the time for us. It's always appreciated. Especially, it's a it's a little bit of a weird situation. I think every single podcast has acknowledged this, and uh, we're confined at home, and all of this craziness is happening all around. Although. Maybe less than the movies would have made right. us believe. But uh, how's the situation in, in the UK? We were talking about it a little bit earlier before we started recording. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it seems it's yeah, not I mean, as uh, seriously taken as it should be. Yeah, the, the past week has certainly been something, I think, for everyone around the world. Um, you know, this uh, COVID-19 situation is is having a, you know, quite a big impact on everyone, I think. Um, in the UK here, it's a bit different. We are uh, taking some, you know, precautionary measures. For example, we closed schools, but our government has been a bit slow to respond compared to the rest of Europe, perhaps. Uh, we don't have a lockdown just yet. There might be one coming. Um, and the number of cases now is rising quite fast. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think we have to remember that it's the people on the front lines who are, who are bearing the brunt of this, you know, the nurses, doctors, uh, people who are just working their their original, uh, their normal jobs, you know, um, grocery workers, grocery store workers, Uber drivers, people who can't afford to take time off. Uh, I'm lucky that I work from home and I can essentially, I don't have to change much because I'm already self-isolating, but I know it's a very difficult situation for, you know, everyone in the world right now. And you were telling me that there, you already have 3,000 confirmed cases in the UK, which is more than uh, there were in uh, Italy and France when the s severe measures were taken. And the problem is, because of how it works, we're not going to get back into those details, but social distancing and confinement is incredibly important to do as early as possible when you start getting into that uh, stage of the uh, pandemic. And it's a little bit puzzling. Maybe I don't no, we don't know the details of what's happening in the UK. I mean, I don't, but it seems like if you have more cases already, it should be uh, a little bit more strict. But um, anyway. Yeah, I mean, what you said is correct in that, you know, at this point, we should have taken the same precautions that, you know, perhaps Italy or France have done, but it, it looks like we are a bit slower. And that is obviously not the best thing to hear during something like this, where you can you can look at what's happened in China, you can look at what what's happened in South Korea, and you know perhaps how they've been able to handle it, and see that we're not actually doing that, and you know, that's of course 
not the fashion yeah. but the the maybe just the last word i'll say on this the reason why you want to um and this has been discussed everywhere so i think by now people know but just in case the reason sure. you want to implement social distancing and making sure that people don't interact or interact as little as possible only the ones that have to go out etc is that uh, most people are going to get sick anyway or you know a high percentage of the population but what you want to do is slow down the progression of that uh, spread so that health services have the capacity to deal with the concurrent number of sick people because it spreads so fast. If you just interact as you would normally, then the number of cases is going to skyrocket and the, the, the health services are going to be completely overwhelmed and people are going to get uh, treated less uh, efficiently and many people are going to die. More people are going to die because you just don't have enough respirators and beds and medical personnel and all of this. And um, this is the key thing, and this is why you force people to not go out and not interact. And this is, like, beyond proven, established uh, response to, to the issue. And it's super simple. For those who can, and maybe forcing it a little bit, you just stay home. And you don't go out or only, you know, once a week to do your shopping. And that's it. And in that way, you uh, throttle the progression of the illness to a level that we can manage as much as possible. And there's been some weird responses to this in most countries. Some people are just, just keep going out, which is mind-boggling, uh, including in France and Italy and Finland, where I am now. But uh, it's, it's really just a simple answer to this, and it works. And of course, it doesn't make everything perfect, but that's why it's important. So I thought I'd mention it. Um, and pivoting very quickly to the uh, game world, uh, you mentioned that a lot of people are going out, and it's true. I mean, what what I've seen and heard is that, you know, actually retail sales are up quite significantly uh, for video games because obviously one of the safest ways to, uh, you know, sort of pass the time, one of the safest <laughs> things you can do right now to pass the time, yeah, is to stay at home, um, play video games or watch movies. And so, uh, yes, digital and online is also having a very big boost in terms of online retail course, yeah. and digital downloads. But even video game retail, brick and mortar stores, is actually seeing an increase in um, sell through, and especially now with Doom Eternal and Animal Crossing coming out. Uh, and so those uh, stores are actually doing quite well. And I think that ties into why you've been at GameStop's announcements yesterday, why they didn't exactly yeah. want to close down, even when that is the safest thing that they should do, you know, to protect the health and safety of their, and not just their staff, but their customers and, you know, everyone. But, they they uh, are claiming to be an to essential service, an essential service comparable right. to like food stores and uh, medical services, which I understand why someone would think they should, they would need to do that because GameStop has been in such a down spiral for years at this point and they're like oh my god we could make a little bit more money now but it's like literally playing with the lives everyone who stays out more than they should at this point is playing with the Absolutely. lives of uh their fellow humans like literally you, you know there were uh, in france sorry we're gonna go on for just a little bit longer about this because it's so frustrating <laughs> In France, yeah. the president used a wartime-like language uh, on his yeah, yeah. second intervention, uh, not intervention, but speech on, on the uh, TV. And, and he was like, we are at war, we are at war. And there was a comparison to this, uh, which was interesting. Um, it, it, our grandparents were called to war, we're being called to stay on the couch. And that should be, mm -hmm. we should be able to do this. And if the war comparison kind of stands, and I think there are arguments to say that it, that it does, then the people who don't 
stay home, even though they could. Of course, we're not talking about those who have to go out and work. Like Even things like people who go out to collect trash, we don't think about this, but they have to go out. Like health services, of mm -hmm. course, many people have to. But those who don't and go out just to have a beer or have fun in the park, if the war comparison stands... They're honestly kind of traitors, like like they're collaborators yes. with the enemy. They're they're helping the Nazis. I know it's you know Godwin point sure, but sure, sure. you know it's literally, honestly, completely a hundred percent helping spread the virus and uh, overwhelm health services and mm -hmm. kill people. This is not an over exaggeration. They help kill people. That's unfathomable. Like why would you go out and just to have a drink? Yep. Anyway, it's so frustrating. I think you have to look at it uh, two ways as well in that, so for example, here in the UK, the government response has been very slow. Um, but if you look at the US, for example, I mean, yes, it was, you know, you have Trump there and it was a terrible response. And I mean, looking just towards South Korea and, and Italy is a much better example of how they've, you know, at least tried to, to combat it and South Korea being extremely successful with their government measures. But, you know, now, I mean, going back to that, that wartime analogy, you know, the U.S. is is ensuring that uh, workers who may be unemployed are getting paid. They've invoked the, you know, Defense Production Act, which is like a World War II, Korean War Act, where they can essentially order private companies to manufacture, um, you know, like masks and, and medical equipment and other life-saving equipment. So that there's a lot of mobilization going on. I think that, you know, when, when a populace can see that their government has taken that action, uh, that is when we will see a lot more... Um, you know, lockdown, self-isolation, people are actually taking this a lot more seriously because if you look at UK media and what they've been reporting, a lot of the people that are going out are going out because the government isn't taking this very seriously. And they're actually repeating, uh, you know, phrases that Boris Johnson has said himself that, um, you know, for example, like, we've got to take this on the chin and stuff like yeah. that. That is, that is that to people, you know, not taking it very seriously. I think there's certainly some of that. And I'm sure Boris Johnson and Donald Trump are responsible for, you know, partly responsible for the way things are going now. But just to put this a little bit in perspective, in France and in Finland, maybe a little bit more in France, but from what I understand in most countries that implement lockdowns and confinement measures, it happens. And people still go out and people still go to the park and be, do things in an incredibly frustratingly and irresponsible way. And to this sure. day, like a week after the initial speech by the president saying, just stay the fuck indoors, to this day, people are still going out just for fun in France. So... I think everyone looks at their own country and is like, oh, my God, we're so bad. And the French people are saying, oh, this is the French yeah. irresponsibility and rebelness. And, and the, the Americans are like, oh, Trump is, is so bad that now we're forced to stay indoors and, and people are not taking this seriously. And I know in the UK there's a similar. But I think partly, yes, certainly that's part of it. But also... I think there's a psychological difficulty in dealing with this, maybe, or not wanting to understand how serious it is, and irresponsibility, just plain stupidity, if you want to call it that, but um, it, it's mm -hmm. happening everywhere, so I don't know. Anyway, um, let's talk about video games, and still relating to that, um, you've been following how the supply chain has been uh, recovering, I, I guess I hope it's again, a little bit uh, in, inconsistent to say such strong things and then worry about video games. But still, this is what we're here to sure. do. So 
the supply chain, um, I guess the first question is, will the new generation of consoles be available at the time they were supposed to, or will this affect that? In general, it seems China is recovering and uh, factories are opening again, so it's back in almost full gear, or is that not the case? So right now, I mean, it, it's always going to be very difficult to say because the situation is always changing. Mm -hmm. And so what I say today could be irrelevant tomorrow because of any developments. But, uh, you know, at least speaking as of today, I mean, what we can see is that Sony and Microsoft themselves have said PlayStation 5, Xbox One, sorry, Xbox Series X, are still on track for the holiday 2020 period. So there doesn't seem to be at least publicly uh, facing announcements, any sort of change in their messaging uh, from them. And if you look at China specifically, you know, last year, 2019, 90% of video game consoles that were imported into the US were manufactured in China. So that's a huge amount um, of reliance on China and, and Southeast Asia a bit uh, for the other 10% in order to, uh, you know, get the right components, manufacture these consoles, and ship them to the U.S. on time. And so what you're saying is that, yes, the the uh, you know manufacturing and production is recovering slightly. There is an expectation that, you know, by April, things should be back to normal. And ultimately, that, that is a positive sign, because assuming there's no further disruption, you know, PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X uh, production is really going to ramp up towards the end of Q2. So as long as those... Um, you know, those manufacturers, those production facilities are operating at 100% capacity uh, by the end of Q2, and they're able to, uh, you know, source all the relevant components, then there really shouldn't be an impact on the sort of Q4 holiday 2020 uh, launch for those for those two um, products. I think right now the, the worst case scenario is that maybe there's a limited launch, maybe they have to ship the consoles using um, air freight, uh, you know, rather than boats. And um, that means there might not be as many products on, uh, sorry, as many uh, consoles on the short, on store shelves as there, sh there could be. Um, but really, that's sort of, I think, the most impact we'll see at this point. Mm -hmm. I think, obviously, the worst case scenario is that we do see a delay into 2021. And that will, of course, be because these uh, you know, production facilities haven't been able to sort of meet demand. But you seem to, say, to be saying that this is unlikely at this point to happen. So... The, the Again, the swift action of the Chinese, which maybe we were, uh, at least I was, I know, a little bit wary of uh, initially, now seems mm -hmm. like it's going to save our holiday new generation of consoles. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they've been taking some some very, very tough draconian action. Uh, you know, you can always debate about what was the right thing, what was the wrong thing to do. But if you look at the number of cases coming out of uh, Hubei province, which is where the virus started, so in the city of Wuhan. Um, there have been no cases for the past couple of days, I think, yep. uh, there. Um, so that is a very positive sign that, um, you know, things are sort of returning back to normal in a sense. You know, more mm -hmm. people going out. Um, in the rest of China, things are uh, things are open. You know, things are operating as normal. In, in Wuhan, I mean, actually, my colleague is has been there for the past two months. Uh, stuck in in that city because of the the lockdown and sort of the self um, self quarantine, mm. so he has been unable to leave, and it's only now in this past week that 
you know, he's hearing that, okay, well, maybe I'll be able to leave next week or, you know, in a few days. So for him, that's, that's extremely positive and he's been going through a really tough time. Mm. Um, but, but it is a positive uh, overall that things are turning back to normal. And that means that, um, you know, for, for, for products and, and sort of consoles launching in the future, that is, that is a positive sign too. And one other, one other thing I can mention is that Sony and Microsoft and, and Nintendo as well have moved some of their production outside of China. Mm. So, for example, to Vietnam. So that does help because, you know, if those countries are less affected, um, which is debatable at this point, because there's, all, there's always going to be second waves and um, you know, anything could change. But moving production outside of China will always help. Um, but I think, of course, you have to remember that a lot of the components are also sourced in China, too. Right. So, so even if production it's always is going outside, to be about, yeah. yeah, it's always going to be about China specifically and sort of how quickly they can recover as to what happens with production. But of course, now we're in this, this whole mess of um, everything that's happening in the West, where everyone is working from home remotely, where everyone is, uh, you know, having to take the same precautions that China has over the past couple of months. And so even if China recovers, you know, there is also this risk in the West where, well, okay, well, is software going to meet meet the launch dates? Mm. Is are, are people going to be able to work from home uh, effectively? You know, what's going to happen with certification for these games and sort of, you know, last minute changes? Mm. So even if China recovers, now we have a whole different issue to think about. Yeah. And but in we, general, we, there shouldn't be a huge um, impact. We're starting to see a little bit of impact on uh, certain games announcing that some things might be delayed. It's it's a, mostly uh, hardware at this point, like uh, boxes sure. not being shipped in time. But most people expect that it will be there will be some impact on the software development as well. So we'll see. Um, and talking about oh, just last question on on the supply chain thing. Do you have any insight on? Other tech products uh, like Apple, new Apple iPhones and stuff like that, are they in the same boat or is their situation a little bit different? Or maybe you don't know, but. So in, in general, it is similar for a lot of um, tech companies because they always the same sort of manufacturers. Hmm. Um, Xiaomi is a Chinese smartphone maker and they have said that they, are, they, they have achieved 80% of their sort of original production capacity Uh, since since factories have reopened, so they are almost you know back on track, which is positive for them, because they have new 5G phones coming out uh, very soon. So at eighty percent, that is that is good for Apple. Um, they are uh, recovering, but it's it's still going to probably be you know towards the end of March, maybe early April, maybe late April, mm. before they can really achieve that hundred you know, percent production capacity. Okay. But towards the end of the in year, in fact, they, they actually be... limited. Sorry, really quickly, they mm. actually limited today the number of um, iPhone purchases an individual can make to two. So you can only buy two um, iPhones now, right? Uh, which is fine, I guess. Yeah. But um, it does show that they they do have to sort of um, worry a bit about some short term uh, shortages. It seems like this might be an anti gouging practice: people hoarding them and selling them back somewhere else yeah. or something like that. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the uh, other big story. There are a few, um, but the other big story is, of course, the fact that we have precise 
specs for Xbox Series X and PlayStation 5. And that means that we can now um, start the war between the people who absolutely want to defend one over the other. And certainly that has already started. <laughs> um, I'll go over the, the, the specs very quickly for those who do want to have them. Uh, overall, though, the Xbox Series X seems to be uh, a, a little bit more raw, raw powerful, a little bit more powerful um, than the PlayStation 5. But there are some specific elements that um, maybe not counterbalance everything, but there's a, there are slight technical differences. So essentially, they have the same CPU and, and uh, GPU um, with a little bit more... Um, uh, uh, compute units on the GPU on the Xbox C Series X, actually a lot more compute units. They have uh, 52 versus 36 on the PlayStation 5, and the um, frequency is higher on the PlayStation 5, which means they have to regulate uh, the frequency, the, the peak frequency is higher on PlayStation 5, but they have to regulate it uh, to make sure thermal uh, issues don't appear. Um, but overall, the graphics power is 12 teraflops on the Series X, about 10 teraflops on the PlayStation 5. Um, Memory-wise, there's about 6 gigabytes of memory. I say about because on the uh, Series X, it's divided into um, two different uh, speeds of two different sections. The SSD is the other big difference. Uh, they are both very, very fast SSDs, but the PlayStation 5's SSD is essentially twice as fast as the Xbox Series X's SSD. So the... Um, compute power of the Xbox is 20%, uh, uh, which is significant higher, but the SSD on the PlayStation 5 is a little bit uh, faster, is significantly faster. That's about it on the differences. Um, and uh, as you noted on Twitter very cleverly, uh, PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X have very precise, powerful uh, specs, and Nintendo has Animal Crossing. Essentially, that is where, where they focus. So uh, I think it's a clever way of saying what matters is games in the end. But uh, if we do want to focus on specs, do you expect one to be noticeably more graphically powerful than the other? Or is it pretty much, you know, comparable? Um, in general, I think if you look at, you know, perhaps multi-platform games, you might see a very slight... Uh, you know, increase in graphical fidelity, or maybe on the on the Series X, but it's it's not really going to be noticeable. And I think that um, you know, first party games might be where we see uh, some actual differentiation. But again, it's it's going to be depending on how these games are built. For example, PlayStation Five developers being able to take advantage of that SSD to completely change how they design games. Um, Series X has the sort of raw power behind it, where it can sort of brute force you know, to run at 12 teraflops all the time. Uh, I think maybe one disadvantage with the Series X is that it does have to scale across multiple um, sort of, uh, what do you call it, devices or like specs for PC uh, for their Series S, which isn't announced yet, but it's part of their, their plan. Uh, whereas PlayStation 5 is sort of very, you know, custom, it's a custom uh, esoteric console that's sort of more reminiscent of 
what you'd see back in the PlayStation 2 or PlayStation 3 days. So, yes, you're right. There's the Xbox Series X that's going to arrive. The games have to be uh, playable on PC as well and on a vast uh, variety of PCs. And certainly that doesn't mean that uh, developers can take advantage of the power of the Series X, but it's more of a brute force uh, as you mentioned, type of uh, graphical fidelity. Um, and in general, on that level, I think the the worst it would get to would be the difference between the original PlayStation 4 and the Xbox uh, One, where there, you know, it's the, the time when we were talking not about teraflops, but about Ps. Like, it's like, is it... 1080p or 900p or is it a dynamic resolution that's changing and you know yes it can be a little bit of a factor in your purchasing decision if you notice that the xbox one is going to render at 900p sometimes instead of 1080p but it's not going to change the world and i expect that it's going to be a similar ish kind of difference and um for the uh, PlayStation 5 side, I think it's going to be very challenging for most developers uh, to take advantage of the uh, SSD specificities because, as you mentioned, it's cross-platform for a lot of things and they, they are not going to be able to design the game from the ground up to take advantage of the SSD. Um, the, of course, Sony Studios, uh, first-party studios, that might be another, different, another uh, story. And that's where I think the uh, strength of Sony might shine. It's those first-party games, those exclusives, which are going to be um, designed specifically for the PlayStation 5. And that is much more than the number of Ps what ma made uh, the PlayStation 5 um, uh, the, I'm sorry, the PlayStation 4 compared to the Xbox One. It was the exclusive games. Um, and I do want to mention, maybe even in passing, the dryness of the presentation of the specs for the PlayStation 5. It was very disappointing for many people uh, to see Mark Cerny present the specs in a GDC uh, panel where they didn't even have examples of graphics that could be achieved or anything. Um, and I understand that sentiment. For me, uh, having run away from a kid screaming for a couple of days, it was very soothing to have Mark Cerny's uh, uh, soothing voice uh, talk about all those tech things that are interesting to me specifically. But yeah, I completely understand. I don't think it's comparable to the bungled uh, presentation of the play of the uh, Xbox One, though, which was a, a, a core problem of the console, of the philosophy of the console, where it was, you know, TV and Kinect and all of that, which it took them a while to recover. I think for the PlayStation 5, they if they show games that are cool, then that dry presentation will be forgotten. But uh, I guess the answer is still not there. And we were waiting for that answer for what's going to be happening with the PlayStation 5. And we still don't have the answer. The only answer we have is tech specs, which don't really matter in the end. Um, they also talked about the audio engine, which uh, could be really interesting, but I'll wait until I get my hands or ear on it to have some real, like, mind-blowing 3D placement of audio sound sources. That's what they're promising, but I'll wait and see. Um, anything to add to all I just said? I think that you're right about the, the dryness of the presentation in that, you know, if this was a GDC talk uh, that was perhaps after a reveal event, it would have been fine mm. uh, because this is really sort of what, you know, people are interested in in terms of the actual tech specs of the console. 
knowing exactly what does what, why 3D audio is important, why the SSD is important. But I think the timing was just a bit wrong because this is the first time that Sony is is really talking publicly about the PlayStation Five yeah. in a you know a public facing way. They advertised it on their social media. They said it would be. I mean, they they made it clear it would be a very technical presentation. They but made it seem. Because... But they made it seem like it would be like the general public would understand what the PlayStation right. Five had yeah. to bring, and. Yeah, and I think that's kind of where they failed a bit in terms of the messaging, uh, because if you look at what Xbox has been doing with perhaps their, tech, their technical specifications reveal, they partnered with YouTubers, they um, you know had like a proper breakdown of each section and explained it in words that were easy to understand, and and PlayStation did that too, uh, you know after the presentation with their PlayStation blog and Digital Foundry did, did their thing, but I think that just the actual presentation i think it might have been better if they had maybe a consumer focused reveal event you know maybe last week or three weeks before and then did the gdc thing now uh but but of course you know with everything that happened with gdc being cancelled and with um the covid19 situation you know we can speculate that maybe plans changed and this is why they just sort of threw out that gdc presentation but even then i think they could have changed it or customized it or done something beforehand in order to set expectations better for this specific event. Yeah, I think if they managed to put it uh, online still, that presentation, which was so awkward with the shadows of people in front of Cerny and all of it, <laughs> um, they, they could have, you know, at least, I don't know, show the console, show the, the controller. It's small things, but we honestly don't know a lot more. They could have given us a spec sheet and that would have been the same result, except I guess we couldn't have heard Cerny uh, try to worm his way into explaining why 10 teraflops isn't worse than 12 teraflops <laughs> because of the uh, frequency of the GPU, which allows for quicker refresh of the resources demands and, you know, the, the SSD, which it, like, it was really a, a way of saying, the other guys have 12, we have 10, but that doesn't mean we're less uh, powerful. And technically, I understand why, but yeah, they, they, they should have done a little bit more. At least, like, show some games loading faster the way Microsoft did. Or, But anyway, I think all of that being said, uh, in, I don't know now, one month, two months, three, three months, when they finally show games, uh, this presentation will be forgotten uh, and we'll yeah. laugh at it, but yeah. that, that's how it goes. And I think, um, you know, at the end of the day, when you, when you look at both consoles, they're both offering sort of, you know, significant advancements in terms of power, uh, features, you know, they have ray tracing, they have SSDs, they have 3d audio, 4k Blu-ray. So, so they're all, they, they are essentially offering the same things and they're, they're essentially offering something beyond what this generation can offer. And when it comes to hardware, that's really what matters to me. When uh, so I think the next conversation to have is going to be about you know the games, the services, the ecosystems, the price of the consoles, the user experience, because that is really where the differentiating the differentiating factors come into play. And you know we can discuss that all day. And I think right now, if you look at where um, Xbox and, and sort of PlayStation are positioned, I think Xbox has a, has a much better proposition um, outside of the, outside of just the hardware. And obviously, you can argue that they you know, are a bit better in the hardware department too. But if you put that to one side and just look at, for example, the fact they have Game Pass, the fact that they have um, support for their games across PC and, and 
other consoles such as the Series S, which is yet to be announced, and you tie that with Play Anywhere or xCloud for gaming cross mobile, you know, they, they really do have this better ecosystem, which is more user-friendly and, and sort of easier to enter than perhaps what PlayStation has right now. But of course, PlayStation has its exclusive games, um, which are considered, you know, to be, you know, 10 out of 10, 9 out of 10 games most of the time. And it has its existing uh, users, of which there are 100 million active PlayStation um, monthly active users, with libraries tied to PlayStation Network through PlayStation Plus. So, you know, these are really compelling um, arguments for why either people should switch to one console or maybe join um, one ecosystem, but also why they should stay within their current ecosystem and perhaps buy the the next console within that, mm. uh, you know, from, from that same company. Yeah, I, I think certainly the Game Pass is, uh, on from an industry standpoint, the most striking evolutionary or even revolutionary service that was created from in in the the current or previous current generation um the games i think obviously sony uh won that battle but the game pass is uh, industry defining and that is also something that i think we're waiting to see what sony will do with i mean their playstation now service is pretty compelling nowadays but um they're not it's not nowhere as compelling as um microsoft's game pass but uh yeah, anyway, much more to see, and we're waiting for that. Uh, let's take a, a little break from the sad news and uh, talk about good news with Call of Duty Warzone, which was released about uh, a couple of weeks ago, and is it's it seems like just like every other successful Battle Royale game, it's conquering the world and doing better than the ones that came before, which were record-breaking in their time. Um, it's a really good game, really fun Battle Royale, bringing the uh, fun arcadiness of the Call of Duty shooting gun feel to a very competent free-to-play Battle Royale. I've enjoyed it quite a bit. And um, the, the progression of the number of players is... When we compare it to Apex Legend and and Legends and Fortnite, it seems staggering. It's going so fast. But um, is that just because it's Call of Duty and people want to try it? Do you have any insight on that? Daniel? Hello? Sorry, I was on mute. <laughs> um, uh, what, what I was saying uh, on mute is that Call of Duty uh, yeah, is, is a known IP. So that's one reason for why people are trying this out. The second reason is that it's essentially a free-to-play game bundled within the Modern Warfare client. So if you have Modern Warfare, you can jump straight into Warzone. You know, there's, there's no waiting around. And the third aspect is, um, so obviously, it's a battle royale game, but there's an impact from the COVID-19 situation that's happening at the moment, where more people are at home. They have uh, more time for you know, entertainment options. And so gaming is, is sort of this big, um, you know, safe way to, to stay entertained at home. And uh, Call of Duty Warzone is now the fastest growing um, non-mobile game title of all time because it's hit 15 million players in, I think, three days. So it's growing faster than any Battle Royale game before it, but also any other non-mobile game before it. And I think you can also look to other games and platforms. So, for example, Steam recently hit 20 million players 
Um, sorry, 20 concurrent. million uh, peak concurrent users yeah, yeah. across its platform. I think about six or seven million were in-game. And so this is this is the first time it's ever cost 20 million. And again, that's because of the COVID-19 impact. The last time it really hit a peak was back in February 2nd. And that was towards the end of Chinese uh, Lunar New Year when there was 19 million players, uh, sorry, 19 million concurrent users on mm-hmm. the platform. And the last week before that was January 2018. So it's been two years since the last time it really hit sort of 18.5 million players. Mm. And back then, that was because of PUBG. Uh, that was when it was hitting 3 million players in game at one time. Um, but now, because more people are staying at home, they are, you know, playing games. They are downloading Warzone. They're on Steam. And so I think we can expect to see some really record-breaking launches for, for example, Animal Crossing that's coming up. Mm. And even record um, engagement across existing titles. So, for example, Bungie's already said that, you know, in Destiny, they've seen a 20% increase in user <laughs> engagement. So we're already starting to see a lot of that um, uh, growth from this impact. Well, and Call of Duty Warzone is uh, deserving of that, uh, uh, of those numbers as well, because it's being hailed as a, a, a great game in its own right. So that's good to see for Absolutely. that franchise. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, I'm not going to talk too much about it, uh, too much more, but it's just a really fun Call of Duty. And I think it might be another one of those, you know, if, if um, PUBG is a little bit too dry for people, and I think it is, um, and uh, uh, Fortnite is a little bit too wacky, and even Apex Legends, one thing that Call of Duty does well, I think, is it, simplifl- it streamlines the gameplay. So you don't have any attachments, uh, which weapon to choose. It's fairly easy. Uh, the, the blue one is probably going to be better than your green one in rarity color, probably. But you, you want to, if you don't know which one you want, you'll go that route. And you don't have to, again, fumble around with inventory attachments, all of that. You just go in, play, and uh, have fun. And they learned from Apex Legends quite a bit. The launch was pretty significantly similar, uh, just announce it and launch. And they have the ping system, which is fairly similar. And uh, they improved over the Battle Royale version from uh, Ghosts uh, 4 from last year. And it's just a very well done game, very fun. And it's a, it's, a, I think it might be finally be the battle royale for people who don't, who never got into battle royale. So, um, yeah, a good yeah, game. That seems to be what I've heard in general. Yeah. Where it's it's sort of hitting that middle ground between PUBG and Fortnite, and you know, again, this this is Call of Duty is is always the biggest game every year in terms of paid game sales. So it's always number one, and I think that. Offering something new and unique to that audience um, is exactly what you know Activision needed to do, and then also it is a good way to bring in new players, uh, as we're starting to see already. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, by the way, I wanted to mention when you said uh, one of the most uh, highly sold game every year, it made me think about the uh, backwards compatibility that was discussed by Cerny for the PlayStation 5. He mentioned um, almost all of the 100 most played games will be backwards compatible on PlayStation 5. And I wanted to mention, that sounds like a lot. I'm not sure how much of a lot it is. They're going to keep working and improve compatibility. But I'm pretty sure that like... 50 of those 100 games are going to be Call of Duty, FIFA, 
and other sports games, which, while mm -hmm. you know, that's fine. I'm not sure those are the games that people who worry about backwards compatibility when they buy the thing on day one and basically super core gamers. I'm not sure those are the games that are that we're going to want to run on our PlayStation Five. Um, so I I, I I have a question mark there. I think um, if yeah. you look at um, just the overall number of PlayStation Four games, so that that includes di digital titles too. Um, I think there's something like 2,000 to 3,000 games, somewhere in between there. Mm. And so having support for 100 is is fine. But I think that Sony needs to talk a bit more about, okay, what about the rest of the other 2,000 games and, and mm. what's happening there? Because essentially one thing that's really great about what Microsoft is doing is they've already confirmed your Xbox One games, your Xbox 360 games, um, and even original Xbox games will work, um, assuming they are compatible I think Xbox only has a few games. Sorry, the original Xbox. And then I think Xbox 360 has, you know, a few hundred or something. And then Xbox One should be all of them. Yeah. So with Microsoft being able to do that and Sony only confirming a few um, PlayStation 4 games, again, I'm not 100% sure whether they're saying, well, okay, only 100 games will be able to run, you know, at a higher resolution or something. Mm. Um, it's, it's not 100% clear exactly what they mean. Yeah. So I hope that they clear that up just to... Uh, you know, reassure people who have their PlayStation 4 library that they're, you know, yeah, they can I think, continue that. I think if it was like, you know, 50% of the games will run uh, without the higher frame rates and resolutions, they would say that. I think 100 games, if they say 100 games will run, it's the others, I don't know, they won't launch or they will have sig significant issues or, I don't, but yeah, they need to clarify this. But this is- They a, said that they would um, increase compatibility over time. Of course, yes. Uh, so in terms of like adding other titles. So, you know, I guess it's going to be seen one, how fast that happens. And, and two, you know, really sort of, are there the games that I would want to continue over? And, and in fact, one thing that um, the Rainbow Six Siege team said is that they are going to have the PlayStation 4 version compatible with PlayStation 5, um, not just from a backwards compatibility point of view, but from a, a cross-play point of view too. Mm -hmm. So you can actually play with people on PlayStation 5 and vice versa. I expect that will be uh, the norm uh, going forward, but uh, but yeah, certainly if it was you know what you're saying about increased compatibility, that is uh, something that is a hundred percent needed. If the final word was there's only a hundred games that can uh, PlayStation Four games that can run on PlayStation Five, this would be the opening of the episode and the main title, and it would be you know there is it, the title would be there is essentially no backwards compatibility with PlayStation Five, um, so they they absolutely 100% need to increase that number and i expect that they will there's no world in which it doesn't increase before launch um or very rapidly after launch um all right last big topic is of course the cancellation of e3 i can't believe how many things have been happening in the past um few weeks uh e3 has been canceled and we all know that uh, this is obviously very big it is as we were discussing before an event that is not just for big presentations that will essentially shift online and that will uh, not be a big difference for most uh, consumers we'll just watch the streams and that's it but the consequences for 
E3 and developers that go there as a trade show might be bigger. Uh, there's the trade aspect, of course, you won't have the networking and the deals and all of that, which a lot of people have been talking about. And then the other thing that people are, are noticing is, will it force some companies to do something online who will then realize well, this works just as well as spending, you know, five million bucks to be on the show floor at E3. We don't need to do that. And then put E3 in difficulty uh, for the future events, like in 2021. Can they still go on? Will people decide, you know what, online worked, even though before that they were just too, uh, there was too much inertia for the deciders uh, and and business leaders to actually say we're not going to e3 this year because this is a big shift and people might not want to make that decision but now being forced to do it they're going to have to experience it and then they might like it um what do you think daniel is that i mean there's the trade aspect of it it might have a big impact and then the second question about the future of e3 what do you think how do you look at this so the trade aspect has been sort of diminishing in its relevance over time. I think if we go back, you know, 10, 15 years, yes, that was the main aspect of E3. But now it's the consumer-facing uh, aspect, which is, yes, these press conferences, these press briefings, these, um, you know, game demos and sort of other uh, consumer-focused events that take place, not just at E3, but across the country. For example, when... You know, Nintendo allowed people to try their games out at certain, I think, Best Buys or Targets or whatever it is in the U.S. And so, I mean, one one thing we have to keep in mind is that AAA uh, publishers can spend over $10 million to $20 million just for, you know, just, just to have a presence at E3 and to sort of get everything uh, there and showcase everything there. And that, that's a huge amount of investment for what is, yes, very little return. So switching to online events or switching to an online press conference um, will save them money. It will probably have the same impact overall because there's going to be more people watching this this year, especially if people are still on the lockdown or self-quarantining around, around that time. And, you know, it, it's, it's why, for example, EA... Um, left E3 recently to do EA Play. It's why Sony have kind of stepped away from E3. It's why a few other companies have done that same strategy. And so in general, uh, we will start to see other publishers sort of realize that, yes, we can do something separate to E3 around, you know, June or July and still have that sort of same uh, reach in terms of reaching that audience. Yes, for smaller developers, it is going to be a bit harder because that trade aspect won't be there anymore. Uh, so, for example, whether it's creating deals or, or um, showcasing certain smaller titles, that might be a bit more difficult. Uh, but overall, I think the future of E3 is very much in flux because they, whilst they have been trying to change into more of a consumer-focused event, it's been a very slow change. And so now they're going to have to sort of really think about, well, okay, how do we make E3 success next year when at this point a lot of companies will have already decided that maybe they don't need E3 anymore. Maybe they just, they just need June. So this is a little bit of a, a crystal ball gazing. And I don't know how much, you know, we can trust the ESA and our knowledge of this and how much, how colored it is by the popular resentment of that organization, which seems to be pretty high at these days. But do you think this is a chance for them to... Um, to rejigger, rejig it and, and kind of reimagine what E3 can and should be? Or do you think it's just... 
you know, they, it can't be solved because this is a little bit of a squaring of the circle. How do you make E3 attractive? It's not Gamescom. You're not going to have 300,000 people show up and it's not the right time of the year. But it feels like that time of the year, the E3 slot is necessary for develop, developers as well. So there should be something happening. But do you think, yeah, again, crystal ball gazing, do you think uh, the ESA is going to manage to do something and, and reinvent the event? Well, I mean, we can look at what they've tried in the past, which is to... Uh, sure. Well, know, then we're screwed. Among... <laughs> then they're screwed. If right, yeah, yeah. Past, yeah. So, so I mean, in, in general, you know, they, they really do have to change things up if they want to remain relevant, I guess, because, you know, with remote work, remote meetings, remote uh, presentations, online presentations, um, you can essentially have your own E3 in June without paying the ESA $10 million or yeah, $20 exactly. million. Dollars. Mm. So it's, it's, it's really going to be up to the ESA to show developers and publishers, this is why you need to be here with us and doing something with us as opposed to doing your own thing. And I think that's going to be a very tough uh, sell next year. Yeah. But uh, again, you, you know, we can speculate all day, but, but really it's up to the ESA. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I it seems like if I had to bet money, it seems like it's impossible to convince people to show up because there is very little... Uh, advantage to showing up except i mean i'm talking about the big triple a developers it might be that it transforms into a smaller sure. event um because obviously things like ces and other trade shows have not disappeared even though the big players have left it's just a different kind of thing that is still interesting and that might be where they go um in the future but we shall see uh, actually what will see it, what will happen this year even because uh, we're not a hundred percent sure. Uh, there's a bunch of other things that are happening because of the virus. Um, there's shipping delays for uh, Final Fantasy VII remake and uh, Animal Crossing, as you mentioned. There's um, some games being free, some a demo festival on Steam. There's uh, Google Games offering games. Assassin's Creed is free. A bunch of stuff. So, if you are stuck at home and you don't have a kid like me, it's a very different experience for, for people who have kids and people who don't, I guarantee you. The people who don't have kids are like, eh, it sucks, but you know what? I'll, I'll just play through my backlog and enjoy some of the things I, I have and never really got into. For those who have kids, it's uh, not exactly the same. A uh, bunch of other little bits of news. I, we're not going to go into Doom and Animal Crossing. I've only had time to spend like an hour in Doom. Um, super fun, super great. And uh, it seems like they're managing to fulfill their promise of improving on the already excellent formula of Doom 2016, uh, which was not an easy thing to do, but I haven't played enough to really um, know more. But the... the, the um, tests and uh rankings and grades and that uh, the name is escaping me but everyone is super positive about it similar with animal crossing it's not really my thing but it's getting nines and tens everywhere it seems like both of their games those games are fulfilling their promises so if that's your thing i imagine you're already playing them because what else are you gonna do right 
Um, but other tidbits of news, uh, Google has announced it has hired um, Shannon Studstill from Sony to lead a new, another uh, game studio in LA. That's in addition to the one, um, oh God, her name is escaping me, um, the other studio lead at Stadia. Ah, oh, the Assassin's Creed producer anyway okay my brain fart i know you're talking about too yes. but i can't remember oh i'm, I'm sure the that uh, venture beat article refers to her so i'm going to keep talking until i find jade raymond thank you very much venture beat there you go yeah people were screaming in their phones just now uh so anyway they have a second uh, development studio open which I guess that's what I say anytime we uh, utter the name Stadia. It's uh, they went, they they had an even worse launch, quote unquote launch, than I could have expected or anticipated. But I guess they're still seriously um, gunning for that market. And the launch will happen when the free version is available, which I expect is not going to be uh, just now. But um, but even then, you know, there are so few games. It's just, it's a mystery. It's, I don't understand. Um, NVIDIA has also had other uh, developers and uh, distributors, publishers, pull their games from the GeForce Now service. And this is, this really seems like a licensing issue, but the service is becoming less and less attractive. Um, I mean, it's it's free, so it is uh, still very attractive and the price to pay for a priority service is very cheap in that beta or initial period. So it's still, I mean, it's not unattractive, but it's still, it seems the future is not super bright for uh, GeForce Now or it's a transitional service. What, what do you, What's your take on, on GeForce Now? I can't remember if we talked about it. Maybe it wasn't launched yet. Um, yeah, I'm sure it wasn't launched yet. But what's your take on that service specifically? Um, so essentially, it's it's a bring your own game service where you have to, sorry, where you can um, you know, link your Steam library or your Epic, Epic Games library or Ubisoft or Uplay library and essentially play those games in the cloud anywhere. And it, it's a, um, a different approach to what Stadia has and, mm. and what everyone else is sort of doing. And it's it's much more consumer friendly and it's it's much um, sort of, uh, it, it, it's sort of a bigger play from NVIDIA to try and capture uh, sort of the cloud gaming uh, space going forward whilst keeping people on their sort of NVIDIA GPU platform. So essentially in the future when we see uh, you know, perhaps GPU sales dwindle a bit because people moving to cloud platforms, um, not just for gaming, but maybe, you know, for um, professional, uh, you know, graphic design work or whatever. Um, NVIDIA sort of wants to be a key player in that by saying, okay, well, look, we have a cloud platform for gaming, we have a cloud platform for professional work, and it's all backed up with our NVIDIA GPU mm. um, hardware on the back end. And so, you know, providing a consumer-friendly service that's low cost and sort of where you pay per hour or pay, you know, uh, per month is a lot better to consumers than what Google Stadia is doing, for example. So from that, but then, um, from yeah. that point of view, it's very good. But I think you have to remember as well that 
publishers uh, might want to do their own thing. They might want to go direct to consumer in cloud and separate it from you know, existing platforms such as Steam. So that is why we've seen, for example, Activision or I think Bethesda sort of withdraw their games from that service because they maybe want to go direct to consumer with cloud or, or have uh, exclusive agreements with, for example, Google or whoever for a cloud version that is separate to what Steam offers. Yeah, which is why it seems Nvidia has. It's all about. It's not about the technology. It's about the licensing, and it seems Nvidia is in a semi-difficult position now because they haven't paid enough attention to that aspect of the service they were mm -hmm. trying to offer. And as I've said before, I, I probably mentioned it in on Pixels, but um, it seems like it is a. Uh, I have no legal background, but my understanding, the way I look at it, uh, Shadow is a virtual PC. So it would it seems like it would be difficult for a company to prevent a game from being on, on Shadow because it's just when you launch it, you have a desktop and your desktop is, your computer is remote, but you still access it like you would a computer at home. So saying we you can't have your our game on your platform is not only technically difficult, but it seems difficult to justify. Um, on the GeForce Now aspect of things, it's a little bit different because they're mutualizing a lot of the resources and doing stuff with the launchers and changing the experience. I think maybe what they could be looking at is uh, offering a service for GeForce Now, which would be more similar to what Shadow is doing. And that might solve the issue for them because then you just have a desktop and sure, they have to pay Microsoft a license for Windows, but I'm pretty certain they would give those away for free at this point. So um, I wonder if they won't fall back on that solution. And that would be, yes, it's less easy to launch games and you have to keep Windows up to date and all of that. And it's more resources because hard drive space and all of that. But I think it might be a service that is on the licensing front less difficult to uh, put together. So I don't know. I mean, ultimately, that is the long-term goal for what they want to do, but just in a very sort of easy-to-use way because they, they want to go beyond gaming and offering you know, their cloud-based GPUs for multiple use cases. And so the, essentially the number of, of GeForce GPU users um, increases because you're not just having local, um, you know, PCs that are using it, but cloud-based PCs too. And so they want to try and get ahead of that switch to cloud or that sort of shift to cloud in the future where, you know, maybe they're using different solutions for the back end. NVIDIA wants people to use their solution. Mm. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. And it's actually very uh, uh, smart of them to get ahead of this. Uh, it might be that they're, yeah, it's it's their gaming service that is seeing a couple of hiccups, but they have plans, as you say, much beyond that. So it's um, just a part of what they're trying to do. Uh, all right, other tidbits of news. Uh, Ghost of Tsushima has a release date. It's June 26th, which means after that, that's it. it. We expected it to be the big summer release for Sony, and um, we expected that to be maybe towards the end of the summer to separate it from The Last of Us Part Two. But it's going to come a month after The Last of Us Part Two, and after that, I, I guess by then we'll have more th stuff to look forward to for the PlayStation 5, I suppose. But um, yeah, has a release date. 
Last of Us is going to be a TV series on HBO. That's pretty exciting. The film Uncharted is going to uh, has a, a release date, which might move now, but uh, it has a director finally. It's been in limbo for years. Monster Hunter movie is being made, and we saw a couple of um, a couple of images from it. All of those might be delayed with the virus, but um, there was a Nintendo Direct for Indies on the 17th, and honestly, not a lot. There's They ended the presentation with Exit the Dungeon, which was already available on uh, Apple Arcade, and is pretty fun, actually. But uh, yeah, it's an Indies. If you like Indie stuff, you're probably already aware. Um, a couple of things that are moving on Hearthstone and Overwatch. It's significant because uh, we haven't seen a lot for a while from those two games. Well, from Hearthstone, there was Battlegrounds. But we're seeing a new class, which is uh, gameplay impacting. And that's the first time since the game launched in 2013 and uh, the next hero on Overwatch arrived on the PTR and of course I like Overwatch a lot so I'm going to talk about it but um, it's significant because we haven't seen a hero for a long time and we're not going to see another one until Overwatch 2 and God knows when that will happen so things moving a little bit in Overwatch and uh, yeah I guess that's about it there's an unannounced, unannounced uh, Star Wars games game that leaked um, on the PlayStation Network, it's like Rebel... Um, what's the name? Uh, Maverick. There you go. That's almost the same. Um, Mario Kart Tour on mobile has a real multiplayer. And um, I guess we can talk just a little bit about that article on um, Quantic Dream... Uh, on it was a venture beat article by Dean Takahashi, which made a little bit of noise a couple of weeks ago because all right, so a little bit of background. Oh, actually, before we do anything you want to add to all of that uh, many pieces of news i I mentioned, or maybe talk about ten ten cent earnings or anything like that. It's just tidbits, but. Uh... Um, I mean, we'll probably have an article up about Tencent earnings on our website, which is nikopartners.com forward slash blog. And so if you want to read more about, I guess, the China games industry, that's all there. All right. Good to know. But usually, uh, in general, it's uh, lots of money going to Tencent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, they're still the biggest games company globally. I think a lot of people don't realize that you know Tencent is sort of the number one publisher for PC and, and mobile games uh, in China, and also the number one publisher globally. Um, you know, bigger than like Activision or Sony, Microsoft, etc. And they, of course, own um, you know Riot Games, League of Legends, and Supercell. Uh, you know, Clash Royale, Clash of Clans. So um, they are very sort of. Whilst people may not know Tencent themselves, and I'm sure they do these days, but um, traditionally. It was a very unknown company, um, but they are sort of, uh, you know, silently expanding over the world yeah, with acquisitions and investments. Yeah, yeah. So, so they they are very much the um, company to watch in terms of the game space. Yeah, Tencent and NetEase are the two that we hear the names of constantly when it's like, yeah. oh, that company got money from someone. Who? One of the two. Um, so yeah, uh, summary uh, reminder of what happened with Quantic Dream. There were a series of uh, investigative articles in um, France from three very well-respected uh, uh, 
um, publications a few months ago. And Quantic Dream, of course, big developer, uh, essentially principally on PlayStation, but now they've, uh, they're spinning over to other uh, platforms. And um, the article was about crunch and impropriety and the way uh, the business was being handled inside the company. And it was damning. And um, the reaction of Quantic Dream was not great. It, they denied. And of course, as with all of these um, instances, it's very difficult to know if this is the feeling of every employee at the company or if it's an isolated instance or um, if it's you know, the others would tell you, actually, that's not how I feel um, about the thing. It seems like an isolated case, but certainly the, um, the, 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 the articles were well-researched and uh, negative. And now, a few months later, this VentureBeat article is uh, contradicting the previous reports, but the big issue and the reason it made so much noise in a negative way is that the journalist that um, that wrote it only talked to people from Quantic Dream and to people who were approved by PR, usually with PR people present uh, in the discussions. And that is essentially a cardinal sin in journalism. Like, how do you... Of course, you you want to get that take to get all of your... You know, when you do a piece on something like this, you want to get the... the to hear from every party or to give an opportunity to every party to say their piece. But you can't do an article just from what the PR of the company you're investigating is telling you. And this is essentially what he did. So I think it kind of backfired for Quantic Dream. They were trying to do a PR operation and they thought it would be a, a positive thing for them. But in the end, everyone kind of waved their hand and was like, what the hell is this? Like, this is not trustworthy or... So, um, yeah, it made a lot of noise. I don't know if you have a take on this. It's a somewhat controversial topic, I guess, but uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, in general, it was just a, you know, a PR article. So there wasn't, as, as you said, it was very one-sided. It was something that they shouldn't have published in that state. I think, you know, it, it's fine to speak to people in the company and kind of get a, get a different side of the story, but you have to acknowledge the original story that's published and actually talk about that and and include, you know, quotes and sort of um, everything that, that was in that original article and more in order to present a, a kind of honest view um, from, I guess, both parties in this case. Yeah. But, yeah, the, the way the way they published it was something that, rightfully so, angered a lot of people and upset a lot of people, um, especially the people who worked on the original articles, the French journalists. And uh, I think it was a mistake to do that, to, to publish it. Yeah. Agreed. It's, it's so strange because it's... It's it's the cardinal rules of journalism that are not being respected here. It's it's very surprising, but uh, especially from Takahashi, who's been a journalist for a long time, and Venture Beat, who's a serious uh, publication. But 
Anyway, surprising. Um, and that's going to be it for this episode. I think we've covered most of the topics we wanted to cover. Um, thank you so much, Daniel, for being with us once again. Uh, before you leave, won't you please tell people where they can get uh, all of your amazing dad jokes 24-7? Uh, huh. uh, so, yeah, the best place to find me is on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter account is JugaEX, which um, you'll probably link in the description. Absolutely. So that's easier to... To, to spell it out that way. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, thanks for having me back on, Patrick. I, I really appreciate the, the invite again. Thank you. And for me, it's uh, not Patrick on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you want some fun stuff, uh, you can check out my Instagram. It's always a, a fun time. And especially in these times of confinement, uh, you might find some increased uh, enjoyment out of it. And uh, I guess I'm going to not go back and play Doom, but uh, record more stuff in order to entertain all of you. That's my goal. Um, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back hopefully in a couple of weeks. Thanks again, Daniel. See you soon. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.